Good morning, and a special welcome to everyone uh, to a special edition of Vision for You. Merry Christmas if you celebrate that. Happy holidays to all. My name is Larry Kay, and I am uh, going to be the host for the presentation uh, today. And today, of course, is Sunday, December 25th, 2022. Let me give you the share ID numbers for Friday, December 23rd. <clears throat> the uh, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting, that number is 19,782. That's 19782. And for the 10 a.m. meeting, that number is 19,783. That's 19783. This morning, A Vision for You presents Step 3, The Ultimate Surrender. So our speaker is going to utilize the big book text along with her personal experience. She's going to uh, talk about step three and its implementation and its impact, which, of course, is a spiritual transformation. So one, one of the defining features of, of being a compulsive overeater is that it's, it's kind of like a, a, a fire hose, <laughs> of, a fire hose of tiny humiliations, right? That, that constantly blasts you in the face. It never allows us to look away, even when we desperately want to look away. And I've heard it said that, you know, the first, <clears throat> the first casualty, if you will, of this disease is the truth. That's the first thing that goes is the truth. And, and you know, addicts lie. I know that personally. <laughs> I know that all too well. They lie to their families. They lie to friends, they lie to coworkers. But most of all, I think one of the big, big challenges is they lie to themselves. And it doesn't, you know, particularly matter the day. You know, here we are on a special day for many. This disease could care less about the day. It could be Christmas, it could be Hanukkah, it could be Kwanzaa, it doesn't, doesn't matter. With the compulsive overeater in active addiction, our entire existence revolves around the next binge. And we'll do anything to avoid that feeling of withdrawal. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go to any lengths. We talk about any lengths. We'll go to any lengths to get that next hit that comes from a binge or the, the ancillary behavior surrounding uh, being a compulsive overeater, right? We'll go to any length for that. We'll go to any length to protect ourselves from realizing the harm our actions are causing others, the harms that our actions are causing ourselves. This disease does not take a single day off. In fact, I was, I, I was chuckling to myself earlier. I do a lot of that by myself. I, I was thinking that it's like uh, this disease is like Amazon. It operates with efficiency, you know, 365 days a year. Uh, it doesn't take time off. It's, it's very good at what it does, right? And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous emphatically tells us in the chapter of Vision for You, that we had, and I quote, an, an insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did, and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable us to do it. And it goes on to say, there was always one more attempt and one more failure. And we became subjects of king alcohol, shivering denizens, it says. It means like residents, uh, uh, inhabitants, shivering denizens of his mad realm. And, you know, we do what we know in active addiction. We eat. We eat to kill the pain of what we ate. And we do it over and over and over again. And then the big book tells us that we'd awaken to face the, what do they call it, the dreaded four horsemen, terror, 
bewilderment, frustration, and despair. There's no reprieve from this disease. There's no rest for the exhausted, the weary, right? This disease, my sponsor tells me, wants us dead. Surrender, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing. Surrender, we're going to hear about it from Jody this morning. Surrender cannot happen until the pain of continuing to eat and engage in these behaviors becomes greater than the pain of stopping because rest assured, it's painful to stop. It's physically painful to stop. It's emotionally painful to stop. So that pain has to become greater to continue. And I was thinking this morning that, you know, about a soldier on the battlefield. They're, they're not, you know, this soldier, he or she, they're not going to wave the white flag of surrender until they, they, they come face to face with their imminent death. You know, we have to know in our hearts as a soldier, let's say, and I've never been a soldier, right? But I would, I would presume we have to know in our hearts that we're out of options, that there's no possibility of advance. There's no possibility of retreat. We are out of ammunition. We're done. And only then will we lay down our weapon and follow the instructions given to us to survive. I thought about a cancer patient. You know, a cancer patient, and there may be someone on the line today, they, they have to understand the problem they're facing, right? They have to understand it to the best of their ability, and then they have to understand the solution to that problem and then how to bring that solution to light. In other words, you know, he or she has to come to a, a, a conclusion of the mind about the problem and the solution before they embark on the action, actions necessary to live. And, and here's the reality. We cannot know the outcome. You're a cancer patient. You can't know the outcome of those actions before we decide to take them. We have to tr don't we have to trust in the face of fear, natural fear, human fear? Courage comes before the possibility of a miracle. Courage in the face of the fear comes before that possibility. And his ultimate surrender that we're going to hear about won't really be evident just because he proclaims, even publicly, that he surrendered. No, his surrender is going to be evident to anybody who looks. His surrender is going to be evident by the actions he's willing to take. All a patient can do is trust the treatment process by following the directions suggested. And by the way, no one said that the treatment be, would be without pain. We know that, right? There's going to be some pain. And I'd suggest to you with love and kindness, there are only two categories of people in OA. I say this with love, those who come to cooperate with the treatment and those who do not. And I, I wish I could tell you that there's a third category of, of people in a way that you know, we'll, we'll call it the kind of sort of cooperating. But that would be disingenuous of me. That, that message would lack compassion. And I'll wrap up and we'll hand it off to Jody by saying on page 45 in the chapter entitled We Agnostics, the big book tells us, it says, our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. That's the good news this program of spiritual action offers. So joining us this morning, I met this woman a number of years ago um, in, in, in Northern California. I don't know if she remembers, but I remember. I remember her. 
and Jody E. Uh, from California. She's a, a dedicated member of Oak Readers Anonymous. She's a, a devoted practitioner of the 12 steps. I think she does it like me imperfectly <laughs> and, and, and also the 12 traditions found in, in the big book. So it's with great pleasure that uh, please join me in, in uh, welcoming Jody E. to the line this morning. Good morning, Jody. Good morning, Larry. Thank you so much. And of course, I remember meeting you in uh, <laughs> San Jose, California, I believe it was. Yes, it was a very pleasant experience. Good morning, everyone, my precious fellows in recovery. Good morning, higher power. Merry Christmas to all of you who celebrate Christmas. Thank you for being here. I consider this to be my greatest Christmas gift today to be here sharing with you. My name is Jody E. I used to go by Jody E.Q. back in the day. I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater, anorexic, and bulimic. By the grace of God and this program, I currently have 18 months of renewed abstinence from my alcoholic foods and beverages as well as my anorexic and bulimic behaviors. While this is a relatively short amount of time, given my many years in Overeaters Anonymous, I am truly grateful for each and every moment that I am free from the bondage of my eating disorder. To be neutral around my alcoholic foods and to eat to live rather than live to eat is nothing less than a miracle, a miracle that can happen for anyone who is willing to put down entirely their alcoholic ingredients, foods, and behaviors, and to work these 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous as if their life depends upon it, because it really does. I know mine does. So step three, the ultimate surrender, is my chosen topic today, and I will attempt with God's help and my submission to his greater purpose to communicate to you the potential and power that step three holds. I sometimes hear that the third step is just a decision that we make on the way to the rest of the steps. It would seem to say that it holds little power to transform us. And while this may be true, my experience with the third step is that step three is an extremely powerful step in and of itself. The book Alcoholics Anonymous, commonly referred to as the big book, has been the most important book in my life. No book has touched me more profoundly than this Ship of a book written for alcoholics in the 1930s. I am not an alcoholic. I am a compulsive overeater, but it touches me, I believe, just as profoundly as it does the alcoholic. I will be referring to it often during this share, and I know that I am not alone in feeling that this book has an uncanny ability to describe my experiences as a compulsive overeater. 
Now, of course, step three comes on the heels of steps one and two. This is important to remember. And the more completely we take these initial steps, the initial two steps, the more profoundly can we take step three. So I will begin by talking a bit about my steps one and two experiences. I began to take step one when I first opened the big book in late 1987 and read the following passage from the chapter, How It Works, on page 60. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But, as with most humans, he's more likely to have varied traits. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he's sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? And do not his actions make, make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? Well, when I read those words, I saw myself as clearly as if I was looking in a mirror for the very first time. I was a new mother living with my husband in a house that we had recently bought and remodeled together. I had what I thought I had wanted and yet I was desperately unhappy. I began to think that I, like my mother before me, would end up committing suicide. I now understood why she had done what she did. I may have had some postpartum depression, but I also had the disease of compulsive overeating, a disease I had had since childhood as well as a hole in my soul due to a lack of a relationship with my higher power. The bedevilments on page two, paragraph two, describe how I felt at that time perfectly. As I said, the book has an uncanny ability to describe me. 
I'm going to read the bedevilments on page 52. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. I had never supported myself by this time in my life. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. I was having panic attacks at that time. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people, and especially my husband. My husband was very unhappy with me at this time. Bill's words on page eight of his story also describe how I was feeling just before finding OA. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. And for me at that time, It was both food and depression that were my master. Going to my very first OA meeting shortly thereafter, on February 22nd, 1988, the very day after my 29th birthday, I met a group of people who were admitting powerlessness over food. This was a revolution for me. It was a tremendous relief to realize that I was not alone in my struggle with food. I knew at that first meeting that I was exactly where I needed to be, that I was home. I had a spiritual awakening at that very first meeting. To, be, to the suggestion that that a higher power that God could restore me to sanity when it came to food was intriguing. If God was God and I believed in God and I believed God could do anything, then it made sense that God could help me with my food problem. But it had never occurred to me to ask God for help with my food. I think it seemed like too personal a problem. Nor had I asked my higher power to ask me for help with my struggling marriage. I didn't have a relationship with my higher power. Hmm. I also had a very unsettling experience at that very first meeting when I read step three. When I read step three, my immediate thought was this. If I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, I will have to leave my husband. That was my very first thought. It would be years before I would begin to abstain entirely from my alcoholic foods and ingredients. Though we studied the big book and the AA 12 and 12 in those days because we didn't have any other literature other than pamphlets and perhaps the OA big book, I didn't know anyone in my intergroup 
who believed in or practiced abstinence from alcoholic foods and beverages. I suspected that I personally did need to abstain from sugar and flour, but without a fellowship of people who believed that this was necessary, and on the contrary, in a fellowship that was vocal about not needing to abstain, I was unable to abstain for any considerable length of time. I did get a sponsor and I did attempt to work the steps. And I do believe my step work was effective to some extent, but not to the extent necessary to recover. I did believe, as I said, and I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity around food. But it took years for that to happen. I desperately wanted to recover, but it felt like it was the holy grail or something. Very desirable and yet largely unattainable. In 1995, I went to an Overeaters Anonymous convention in San Francisco. I had begun to abstain, at least periodically, but I was not working a strong step program, certainly not a strong step nine, especially concerning my husband. I continued to blame him for my problems, my difficulties in various ways. I know that he felt whether I was abstinent or not abstinent, I was unavailable to him. I was either obsessing about the food or obsessing about the program. When I went to that OA convention, my mind was swirling with a question. Should I leave him or should I not? Should I leave or should I not? But I could not make a decision. All I did was think about it constantly, but never a decision. What happened at that convention was a gift of grace and nothing that I did of my own accord. I began to go wanderingly into one meeting after another. And by chance or perhaps by design, every meeting or workshop that I entered that Saturday was on step three. I heard one compulsive overeater after another talking about the third step and the importance of making a decision to turn one's will and one's life over to the care of God. Somehow, I made that decision that Saturday in a very profound way. And the effect was electric. Like Bill's experience described in his story on page 14, there was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up. Indeed, I felt like my feet weren't touching the ground as I walked. As though a 
the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his effect on me was sudden and profound. So indeed, as I say, I was a different person that weekend. I no longer had a fear of people, which is one of the greatest fears of my life, I would say, is a fear of people. And I was able to socialize with people that weekend in a way that was not typical of me. I remember uh, I had to go back to my car to get something. And my car was quite a distance and I had to take a shuttle to get to my car. And on that shuttle, I remember people being attracted to me and coming to me and talking to me about very personal things, including a pilot who began to confide about it, confide in me about his wife and daughter and how he felt that all they cared about was the money that he brought home. When I got home from that weekend away, after on my way to the convention, all I could think about was whether or not I should leave my husband. When I got home on Sunday, my husband was angry, as was typical. He was angry because I had left for the weekend, leaving him at home with our daughter, who was about nine years old at the time. And despite his anger, my heart filled with love for him. And I could feel the love radiating out of my heart and towards him. And though it didn't change him immediately, probably within 24 hours, we had come together in a very intimate way, and he was happy as a clam. And as I said, my feet still did not quite feel like they were touching the ground. I can remember walking along a lake by our house and looking up at some eucalyptus trees that were moving in the wind with the sun shining on them. And as I looked up at them, it truly looked as if they were shining, glimmering, sparkling. And my daughter, who was with me, I said to her, Mika, look up at those trees. Can you see (laughs) how they're glimmering? And she said, yes, I do. And she too, like the people at the convention, was attracted to me in a way that she was not always attracted to me. And she said to me, Mommy, Mommy, I love you. And she wanted to be close to me. So there was something truly different about me and about my experience. Now this amazing spiritual experience, I have come to realize, was much like the fifth step experience that is described on page 75 of the big book. Now the fifth step promises, rather, 
have some have been something that I thought had eluded me. I've done several fifth steps in my many years in OA, and I never had this fifth step description, promise description as it's described in the big book, but I now realize that I did have it as a result of this step three experience. So I'm going to read the fifth step promises now. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have had spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. That's exactly how I felt. My food problem, I kind of forgot about it. It it was like not an issue suddenly. Now, did this spiritual experience last indefinitely? I'm afraid it did not. It lasted for about two weeks. After about two weeks, suddenly I had the thought, the fear that it might go away. And as soon as that thought came in, sure enough, it did pass. And I went back to my normal way of being. However, I will never forget that experience. And I am, to this day, striving to get back there and to take as profound a third step as I did that weekend. All right. So... So as I say, I did go back to obsessing about my marriage and about the difficulties in my marriage. It was exhausting. Yep. Um, I'm looking at my notes here and finding my place. (laughs) So what happened? Why did that go away? Well, I did fail to continue with the steps. I did not quickly move on to the remaining steps. I failed to enlarge my spiritual life. And just as it says on page 85 in the first full paragraph, it is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. My poor husband and I continued to struggle for another 17 years. 
and so did my program. Eventually, I found telephone meetings. And just before my husband and I separated, I found this meeting, A Vision for You. I got entirely abstinent again, and I worked the steps as they are outlined in the bit book. Getting abstinent again, I woke up and realized that my husband was profoundly unhappy, and I spoke to him about it. We hadn't been talking much at all. He admitted that he wanted out of the marriage, something that he was not telling me. He asked me to leave our home of 25 years, and I agreed. Thanks to the program, we were able to have an amicable divorce. And just yesterday on Christmas Eve, I was with him in that same home, along with his new partner, our daughter and her boyfriend, and we shared a meal, Christmas presents, and much goodwill and love all around. I did eventually work all 12 steps. And though he would not let me make a verbal amends to him upon our separation because I had made harmful amends to him in the past, I am making a living amends to my husband today. Letting him go was part of that amends. I had been sitting on the fence ever since before we were married. The day we were married, I was on the fence and I felt in my heart that it was not the right thing to do to marry him. But I was unable to follow my heart. I didn't have a relationship with my higher power. So together, he and I struggled for 30 years. But today, we are not struggling. We love one another today. We support one another today in our chosen path, in our chosen relationships. And that is such a tremendous relief for me. You cannot imagine The 12 steps work when we work them, and step three, when we take it profoundly and seriously and absolutely, when we abandon ourselves to God as we understand God or don't understand God, when we abandon ourselves to this 12-step way of life, all manner of domestic situations can be righted, all manner of problems can be solved. When I determine to put down the food and to stop using food as a crutch, as a solution that it is not, I can begin to unravel the deep-seated problems that underlie my existence. 
And so I, I, I urge you all to take this third step seriously, to become entirely abstinent from your alcoholic foods, ingredients, and behaviors, to turn your will, everything you think you want, and your life over to the care of this higher power that loves you, that wants only the best for you, to the care of that higher power, and you too can recover from this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I love the way, again, that the big book describes this third step experience. It says it so well that I will quote from the book once again. First page 62. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter, in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed the freedom. When we sincerely, I'm going to put this into the present tense, when we sincerely take such a position, all sorts of remarkable things follow. We have a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provides what we need. If we, if, and that's an if, we keep close to him, and perform his work well. Established on such a footing, we become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we become interested in seeing what we can contribute to life. As we feel new power flow in, as we enjoy peace of mind, as we discover we can face life successfully, As we become conscious of his presence, we begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We are reborn. So today, the bedevilments are no longer true for me. On the contrary, I am not having trouble with personal relationships, not with my ex-husband, not with my daughters, not with their partners, not with my coworkers, even my very one of my difficult bosses. <laughs> I'm not having trouble with personal relationships. I can absolutely control my emotional nature thanks to this program, thanks to the 10th step and the 11th step, which I practice daily. I am not a prey to misery and depression. I was terribly depressed for a long time, in and out of Overeaters Anonymous. I was once seeing a therapist for about a year, weekly, and after giving me a, some kind of written test on 
mental health. He diagnosed me with clinical depression and suggested that I go on antidepressants. Well, I knew at that time I was not abstinent. I was in OA, but I was not abstinent. And when he said that, my first thought was to myself, I don't need an antidepressant. What I need is to get abstinent. And sure enough, I got abstinent from sugar and flour and began to weigh and measure my food, which addressed my compulsive overeating and undereating issue. And my depression went away. I can make a living today. When I was married for those with my husband for 30 years, I had a very difficult time finding a career and finding a way to make a living. And I felt that somehow the relationship was keeping me from that. It was so distracting. It was so all-consuming. It was so difficult that I couldn't focus on making a living. And since we separated and divorced, I have learned and come to make a living, which has been fabulous for me. I no longer have a feeling of uselessness, not at all. Primarily through sponsoring others, that is my most satisfying occupation, but also through my work and my other volunteer work, I know that I am not useless. I have a number of very satisfying occupations, not just one. I have a three or four, <laughs> and they are all very satisfying. I am no longer full of fear. I may feel fear. I do feel fear. I, ha- I felt fear this morning coming on to do this special edition. But I feel the fear, and I do it anyway knowing that my higher power is here with me and will help me to do his will. Not my will, but God's will. So I suit up and I show up when I believe that something is God's will for me and I trust and rely on him to the best of my ability. I am no longer unhappy I am no longer unhappy. I am happy. I am content, which I believe is even more significant. I was irritable and discontented for so long. Just ask my ex-husband. <laughs> I, he, he told me one time that I was like the fisherman's wife. You know the fable of the fisherman's wife. She was never happy. She was never satisfied with what they had. She always wanted more. And that was me. I did always want more. Today I can say that I am content and that I am grateful, extremely grateful for all my many blessings. And finally, I do know that I am of real help to other people. And again, I will say that sponsoring people in this program 
is the most genuine, most sincere, most true source of help that I can give to another person. To guide someone to become entirely abstinent, to guide someone through the 12 steps as they are outlined in the big book, has enabled me to help others to recover. And what greater gift can you give someone? It's not giving someone a fish, but teaching them how to fish. And, and for that honor, I am truly grateful. So step three, the ultimate surrender. It is an, a surrender, giving up our will, what we think we want from life and our lives, which is everything. Our finances, our relationships, our marital status, our employment status, wife or no wife, job or no job, we must be willing to give it all over to God. And I am here to tell you that it is a risk worth taking to turn everything over. Food first, and then everything else. It is a road of happy destiny. And with that, I will pass. Jody, thank you so much for your, uh, your beautiful uh, presentation this morning. Uh, you, you know, God's handiwork is never more evident than when we hear a recovered compulsive reader share. And I got that from you this morning with humility and compassion and hope and all that. So thank you so much for that. Um, we are going to now give uh, folks an opportunity to pose a question for Jody EQ. So, uh, and then uh, at the end of the uh, recorded portion of the program, we're going to ask for Jody's contact information. So if you're seeking to do that, uh, Jody doesn't charge a whole lot to give her a call. In fact, I think it's free, <laughs> but uh, we'll get that information later. So if you do have a question uh, for Jody, please unmute by pressing, uh, what is it, star one, and give me your first name and last initial, and we'll, uh, we'll get started for questions for Jody. Who, who has a question? Margaret G. Georgia. Barb, Margaret. Susan C. Susan. Tamara C. Christina Tamara. J. Christina. Anybody else uh, that has a question for, I have you down, Anne, or Jody? Okay, so here's here's who I heard at this point, and again, it's uh, it's uh, star one to unmute and then to mute again. Um, I think I heard Barb, but that may have been jumbled in there. But I definitely heard Margaret, Susan, Tamara, Christina, and Anne. Did I miss anybody? Okay, starting with Barb. If I if I did hear that Elaine. correctly, Barb, I got Elaine. you, Elaine. We'll throw you up. Yes. 
Okay, terrific, Elaine. We'll we'll put you after Anne at the end there. Was there a barb? Okay, I may have I may have crossed it up. Let's start with Margaret, followed by Susan. Margaret, good morning. I'm here, Barb W. Oh, Sorry. okay, Barb, I did hear you. That's okay. You did. Hi, Barb. We'll go with Barb and then Margaret. Gratefully recovered in Illinois. Jody, thank you for your profound share today and your service to us all. I'm curious what you meant with regards to making amends to your husband when you said harmful amends. That's my question. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barb, for that question. Yes. Um, so early on in my Overeaters Anonymous journey, and it has been a journey, I, I believe I had a sponsor, but I probably didn't consult her when I made my first amends to my husband. <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, when we married, I had profound doubts about the marriage. I had a sixth sense that it wasn't right, but I married him anyway because I didn't know what else to do. Um, so my first amends to my husband went something like this. <laughs> I married you against my better judgment. I never loved you. It was something like that. So it was very hurtful and harmful. And in fact, now I realize that it wasn't even true. I, I had love for him, perhaps not the kind of love that you should have when you take your wedding vows, but I did appreciate him in many ways. Something about him attracted me and his intelligence, his education. He's a very accomplished man. He gave me a daughter. And yet I said those words to him. And again, I think I did not insult my sponsor when I said that. So please do not jump ahead and make amends before you get to step nine and without consulting your sponsor first. I'll pass with that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Barb. Okay, next up we have Margaret, followed by Susan, and you guys could give your uh, first initial last name. Hi, Margaret. Hey, Larry. Thank you for your service. And Jody, thank you for the diligence that you followed that inner light within. Um, oh, it's Margaret D, and I'm in Georgia. So I. I understand about the surrender portion of step three. The last part that you read about walking hand in hand with um, the spirit of the universe, what I'm hearing in that is there's surrender, yes, but there's more alignment than anything. So my question is, at what point do does surrender and maybe it's not even at what point, but did you find that gradually surrender morphed or changed into alignment with your higher power? That the two of you were, again, walking hand in hand 
and it was more of a relationship instead of just the I surrender, you do it all, whatever kind of thing. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Margaret. Hmm. Well, um, in step three, when I turn my will in my life over to the care of God, if I do that sincerely, it's kind of like a starting place, isn't it? I have let go of my plans and my designs. I am letting go of all of that. And I'm saying to God, take me, God. I am yours to do with as you will. My plans, my management is not working. It's gotten me into the food and into depression and into despair. I'm going to give my plans up. And I'm going to give my will in my life over to you. And thus begins this journey. And then we proceed with the steps, steps four and five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 11 and 12. And as we work the remaining steps, we begin to practice this, turning our will in our life over to the care of God. We begin to practice praying for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. And it takes perhaps some time. In my third step experience, it was instantaneous for, for a period of time, but it didn't last. It then became the educational variety of experience. And I had to, again, work all the steps and practice this way of life, which I'm still doing. I can still take my will back in an instant. I can still revert to fear and a lack of trust and reliance on my higher power. And that's when I have to do a 10th step. I know that I am relapsing into that when I feel fear or when I feel resentment. So I do a 10th step. I look for my part in it. I see that I'm not trusting and relying on my higher power. And I turn my attention to someone I can help and I get back into fit spiritual conditions. So this is an educational journey that we're on. We may have wonderful white light pink cloud experiences but they usually don't last and we have to go back to trudging this road of happy destiny by practicing the principles of the 12 steps and i'll pass with that thanks for the question margaret okay next up we have susan followed by tamra susan good morning Good morning. <laughs> thanks, Larry, and um, and thanks, Jody, for your for your beautiful share. Um, my question is about um, I guess it's an application question. Applying the notion, or hopefully the state of surrender and alignment, to the day to day, and more specifically. Let's say, for instance, perhaps you have a very busy 
day ahead and you've done your upon awakening and there are many tasks coming your way throughout the day and um and at least for myself there can sometimes be a feeling of uh feeling overwhelmed and i wonder how you bring in as i said that that state of uh alignment um and reliance upon your higher power to that sort of circumstance. Thanks. Thank you, Susan, for the question. It's a question that's very, very um, <laughs> familiar to me, as I am busy also. God has um, seen to it that I have my life is full of opportunity to be of service today, and I am, I am busy often. And um, I, too, feel overwhelmed at times. And I would say that what is working for me today is to remember, whether it's through a 10th step or my nightly review or my morning routine, or if I don't have time for any of those things, to remember to get present in the moment. To breathe, to take a deep breath, to turn my will and my life over to the care of God once again, and to ask for the next right thought or action and the power to carry that out. So rather than anticipating my whole day and everything that I need to do today in that day, I try to take it one thing at a time, staying present for each thing so that I can be my best for each person that I come into contact with in that day, each client, each on sea, each train partner, whoever it is, I need to, to remind myself to breathe, to get very present, and to rely on God to enable me to be present and to do what I need to do in that moment, to know what the next right thing is, and to have the power to be present for it. So that's what's helping me. Thank you for the question. Yeah, thank you, Susan. Okay, we have Tamara next up, followed by Christina. Tamara, good morning. Good morning. Hi, this is Tamara from Missouri. And uh, yeah, Jody, thank you so much for your uh, sharing your beautiful story. And thank you for the part that you have played in, in my recovery. I'm very grateful for you. I wanted to ask you, I'm kind of intrigued by this idea of um, I thought you said something to the effect of when I have a relationship with my higher power, I can follow my heart. And so, um, yeah, that seems an interesting concept that when I get out of camera running the show, then I can follow my heart. And so will you share a little bit about uh, how that works or or what that looks like for you? (laughs) Yes, thank you, Tamara, for that question. Ah, that's a very personal feeling question for me. Thank you. Um, When I was about 
as I mentioned, my mother did commit suicide when I was 12 years old. And when I was about 14 years old, one day I was sitting on a sand dune by the Pacific Ocean at sunset, all by myself, looking out at the ocean and the sunset. And I was crying. I don't remember why I was crying. (laughs) I really don't. It was probably, I don't know why I was crying that day. And suddenly I heard a voice an audible voice. I I was in a spot with nobody around, nothing around. And the voice said, Jody, use my name, Jody, follow your heart. Now, that's a pretty common cliche, follow your heart. (laughs) It's almost a cliche, I would say. But it was what I heard. And I believe I was I heard that from my higher power. So I didn't think too much more about that for years. Probably not until I got into OA. When um, when I met my husband one day, also at the beach on the other coast, on the east coast. He came up behind me and gave me a big hug and said, Jody, I am so happy that you are in my life. You, are make, you are, have made me so happy. And in that moment, my heart literally sank. It sank. It like fell a few inches. So I don't know how much clearer my higher power could have made my heart feel in that moment. Nevertheless, despite this obvious feeling that something was wrong here, my heart was sinking when he said that. I was unable to follow my heart. So why? Why was I unable? Why had I gotten so far away from my higher power's guidance to follow my heart? Well, my eating disorder had gotten in the way, certainly. Food had gotten away. And fear had gotten in in the way. I was afraid that if I, I didn't know how to end the relationship. I truly did not have it within my power. So developing a relationship with my higher power through abstinence, which for me is key, and working the 12 steps has enabled me to finally begin to follow my heart. I had to get abstinent and I had to work the 12 steps to feel like I had the courage and the ability to follow my heart. I could not do it before. So that relationship is absolutely necessary and vital for me to follow my heart. Thank you for the question. Yes, thank you, Tamara. 
Uh, okay, we have Christina next, followed by Anna. Christina, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Beautiful intro. And uh, Jody, what a peaceful journey today with you on the line. Just really love the way you shared and brought me into the present with you, settled me down to really listen. So my question is, um, you identify as a compulsive overeater, anorexic, and bulimic. Um, how did each of those, you know, through the program, how did those each um, take a back seat to your life? In other words, how did they all leave you uh, through this program? Did they leave you one by one? Did you wake up one day abstinent from all of them? Did one go away at a time? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And also, if you Christina, when you say part, they, when you say they, Christina, what are you referring to? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Um, the various aspects of the disease: bulimia, anorexia, uh-huh. compulsive okay. eating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, what kind of battle did you find yourself in, maybe with food behaviors, which is where I'm finding myself right now? Thank you very much. I hope that was clear. Yes, I think so. Thank you, Christina, and and thank you for the question. So, good questions. Okay, so, um, yes, some people might be wondering, how can the Vision for You program help me with my anorexia or my bulimia, with my compulsive overeating, and how how are these different diagnoses treatable by the same solution? Well, in my experience, they are. I am a real compulsive overeater in that there are absolutely foods that are alcoholic for me. Sugar, refined carbohydrates primarily, refined carbohydrates. And also caffeine, in my, in my case. Um, I started using sugar and flour as a child, probably as an infant. I was raised on some kind of formula. All I know is that I was allergic to the original for, formula that I was put on. And they had to give me some alternative formula. This is back in the 1959. So my guess is that there was sugar in those formulas. (laughs) And that's probably when the allergy first kicked in. By the time I was eight years old, I was baking. Um, First with uh, mixes. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was using Julia Child, mastering the art of French cooking and baking and baking and baking and cooking and also baking. (laughs) I became a pastry chef um, in my early 20s. Anyway, so I definitely have this allergy of the body. And what I did to keep from gaining weight, because at the age of 17, I was somewhat about 30 pounds heavier than I am now, and that was not okay with me. I began to diet. I discovered that caffeine was a great diet drug for me. I used coffee to control my eating. 
and I got down um, to a, a low weight that way. Um, entire abstinence and weighing and measuring my food, which, by the way, has come slowly for me. For a long time, I couldn't accept weighing and measuring my food. Today, I embrace it because if I don't weigh and measure my food, I lose weight. I get too low in weight. So abstaining entirely from my alcoholic foods, weighing and measuring my food, having a food plan that's sufficient and adequate and nourishing for me, relieves me of the anorexic behavior of being underweight and the bulimic behavior of binging and purging, which is what I did. Not through vomiting, that was not my way of purging, but by fasting with the aid of caffeine. So entire abstinence, weighing and measuring, addresses my anorexic and bulimic and compulsive overeating behaviors, all of which I can only do by working the 12 steps. Because abstinence without the recovery of the 12 steps is a recipe for an even worse binge as I learned in after coming to OA. Abstaining and not working the steps leads to ever worse bulimia for me. And what was your second question, Christina? I think that was the first question. You know, I don't quite remember. I know that I was interested to find out if those aspects of the disease left you one by one. Oh, I, know, I remember now. Uh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, did you run into behavioral addictions once the food was down? Did you find oh. there was a yeah that started yes. to grab you? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I did, but I think um, we'll have to talk about that on offline because that would be bringing in um, other other addictions that I do have. But I'd be happy to share those with you. Yes, when I put down the food, other behaviors did pop up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Christina, as I said, Jody doesn't charge much if you call her, so <laughs> there you go. Uh, thanks for the question, Christina. Anna, it's your turn. Good morning. I think it was Anna. Oh, good Could morning. Thank you. Good, good morning. morning. I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Mr. Moderator, but you're doing a, such a beautiful job. Um, it's it's you know, uh, Harlan. It's Harlan. Thank you. <laughs> it's Harlan. No, I know Harlan's voice. It's I Larry. Love Harlan. Yeah, thank Larry, you. thank you so much, Larry. Lovable Larry. Jody, I had several. I had tears in my eyes several times. I really could identify. I hadn't. I've been, so thank you so much for your courage and bearing your soul and sharing the promises 
Um, I think you've answered my question prior, but I have another question. Um, it's about your daughter. How did you use your program to when you finally made the ultimate decision to unmarry? How did that um, how did you use your program to help her with your decision, please? Thank you. Thank you for that question. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, my precious, beloved daughter. Ah, you know, she suffered. She suffered a lot. She suffered through the disharmony in our marriage. As I suffered in the, with the disharmony in my parents' marriage, I regret. Well, we say that we won't regret the past. Do I regret the past? Ah. I regret that my daughter had to suffer through observing the disharmony between her parents. However, I know that my daughter has a higher power. She has her own spiritual journey to trudge, just as I do. And I know that the divorce of her parents when she was 25 and the years leading up to that were not easy for her. Um, I also have used my program to the best of my ability, especially since I found a vision for you to um, do my very best to protect her from the negative consequences of that. I strive to hold her father in high esteem. She struggles somewhat, actually quite a bit, has struggled quite a bit in her relationship with her father. And she has seen me struggle. And there's a temptation to commiserate. <laughs> I'll just admit that. But I don't do that. I offer my experience, strength, and hope with her. Um, I work the best program that I can. And I'm grateful to see that her relationship with her current boyfriend is different, very different from the relationship that my parents had and that my husband and I had. I can see that they are in love with each other, both of them. <laughs> and that makes me profoundly happy. And um, I'm just grateful that I have the recovery that I have and I'm going to keep coming back and I'm going to keep working my program as diligently as I can because I know that's the very best thing I can do for her. And with that, I pass. Thanks so much for the question, Anna. Okay, Elaine, good morning. It's your turn. Good morning, Larry. I want to thank you so much for the beautiful introduction. And Jody, you have just 
<laughs> my goodness, I'm so glad I woke up at 5.30 in the morning, which is very early out here in California. You know, well, of course, anytime it's 5.30. And um, I'm just happy that I tuned in. Uh, my question to you is about your relapses. Um, I've been in program about seven years, and I've had long periods of, of abstinence and recovery and sponsored. And then I'll have a relapse, and I look at the reason why, and uh, go for a little while, and then have another one. And I'm wondering, when you have relapsed, what have you done to come to be to recover again? And that's it. So, yeah, that's yeah. Question. Thank you so much. Absolutely, good question. Ah, <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, it's. It's a little embarrassing, I guess, to admit how often I have relapsed. Um, fortunately, my relapses are short in duration. They tend to be short in duration. My tolerance for being in the food is low, very low. The last time I relapsed, which was a little over 18 months ago, I think it lasted for five days. And it wasn't even enjoyable. And uh, I think what, so there was that one. And then prior to that, I think I had three years of abstinence and there was a relapse before that. And maybe one or two, maybe just one before that. And, and the, that's in the last 10 years or so. So maybe three in 10 years since I found a vision for you. So they've been short in duration because once you experience recovery, once you know what it feels like to be recovered, yes, we can relapse. Yes, we can, I can, I'll put it in the first person, I can relapse when I rest on my laurels and I stop living in steps 1, 2, and 3, and 11, and 12. If I work 4 through 9 and I finish all my amends, then I need to maintain my spiritual condition by living in the other six steps. And I include 1, 2, and 3 because that every day I have to work step 1. I need to be abstinent, whatever that takes for me. I need to turn my will in my life and over to the care of God every day. I have to do that every day. And in order to do that, I have to believe that something greater than myself can and will restore me to sanity. I have to maintain my spiritual fitness by doing regular 10 steps whenever I'm disturbed. I need to pray and meditate daily. And I need to carry this message and practice these principles in all my affairs. So when I relapse, it's because I have stopped living in steps 1, 2, 3, 10, 11, and 12. And I think it's usually stopping the latter three, 10 and 11. I stop, I have stopped making sure that I am in fit spiritual condition by uh, staying out of fear, staying out of resentment, and working those 10, 11, and 12. 
Uh, so that's what happens. And as I say, I usually get out of it pretty darn quickly because I know what it's like to be recovered. And once you know what that's like, it's hard to go back and stay back. At least it is for me. And I will pass with that. Thank you, Elaine. Okay, I, I'm going to say that we have time. If there are maybe two more questions for Jody, so we could take it to the top of the hour. We can entertain that Linda if there's Bart. anybody. I'm sorry, was it Lisa? Linda Lin oh, Linda, 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 Linda. gotcha. Yes. Okay, anybody else? Rhonda Trisha L. G. Okay, I heard Rhonda. Did I get that right? Rhonda L. And yes. we'll see, Lisa. We'll, we'll see, Lisa. Let, let's start with Linda, followed by Rhonda. Linda? Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service on the line. Linda R. Recovered in Fort St. Lucie, Florida. I really appreciate, you know, your qualification today. I related to so much. My question is, you know, I'm in program many, many years, and the word relapse, okay? So when I'm sponsoring someone and they have a day maybe where they, they, they don't follow their food plan, they pick up or whatever, I look at it more as a slip, okay? Can you please define what you believe a relapse is versus a slip? Because for me, relapse indicates shame and guilt. And for me, you know, when I'm working with somebody, we make mistakes sometimes. We're not perfect. So I don't call it a relapse. So could you just differentiate what you believe is the difference between slip and relapse? Thank you. Yeah, I can. Thank you for the question. Okay, this is a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, and um, I'm going to be as open and honest as I can be. Um, when I had my last one, I had gone to a restaurant. I was traveling. It was late at night. <clears throat> and I had met a, a cousin for dinner. And I ordered something that I couldn't be sure was entirely abstinent. But I wanted it. <laughs> I wanted it. And when it came and I took a bite, I realized that it was not abstinent for me. And rather than send it back or simply not eat it, I ate it. Now, it did not trigger the allergy of the body. There was an, not enough of my alcoholic ingredient to trigger the allergy. I may not be as low bottom as some other compulsive overeaters are. I suspect that I'm not. Um, and perhaps I could have gotten away with that slip. Um, but, and, and um, so anyway, I ended up calling someone and asking them about it. And they shared with me that for them, that would, that wouldn't, they wouldn't have done that and that would have been a relapse. I kind of sat on that, and I think I had a little bit of a resentment maybe <laughs> about that because I thought I probably could have gotten away with it. But I said, okay, I will accept that that was a relapse. So what, do you, what did I have to do? I had to let go of my sponsees, and I had to 
get a new sponsor. My sponsor let me go, which I understood completely. So what did I do then? Then I rested on my laurels. Now I'm kind of footless and fancy free here. I don't have any sponsees. I don't have a sponsor. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to take my time here to get a new sponsor, which is what I did. I took my time to get a new sponsor. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, another couple of weeks, I just, I, you know, suddenly the idea, suddenly the idea came into my head, that idea that I am powerless against. I have no mental defense against that idea. That, well, I might as well get good and drunk since I have to get a new sponsor and start over anyway. So I went from perhaps a slip to a full-blown relapse, which made me physically very ill, by the way, in a matter of a few days. And that's what it took for me that time to get abstinent again. I told myself that I was just doing the research, experimenting one more time to convince myself that I am a real compulsive overeater. So if you don't have to do that, if you get a little of your alcoholic substance in your system by mistake, quote unquote, mistake, maybe it is just a slip for you. And maybe you can resume. You can talk to your sponsor about it and and discuss it with your sponsor. Talk to other recovered people about it. And you can decide with your higher power, is this a slip or is this a relapse? So it's, I think it's personal. It's between us, our sponsors, and our higher powers. And um, it's not always an easy answer. So that's what I would say about that. Oh, thanks so much uh, for answering that, Jody. Okay, so we have Rhonda next. Rhonda, hang on, hang on for one second here. Lisa, we're going to get um, we're going to get Jody EQ's contact information so that you can contact her. We want to flood her with questions and her boredom between now and New Year's. So, <laughs> so we will get that. So, anyways, with that, Rhonda, you'll be our last uh, question this morning. Good morning, Rhonda. Good morning. Thank you so much, Jody. Um, this is Rhonda L. I'm a compulsive overeater calling in from Toronto, Canada. Um, Jody, you told such a similar story to my experience that I was for the this is the first time I've ever totally focused um, on a call on a vision so carefully because I just felt your peace and serenity after um, everything that you had been through, and it was, it was so hopeful. Okay, my, my question to you is, um, you did talk about making that first amends to your ex-husband, which, you know, was, was not, was hurtful to him and, and whatever, and didn't go over very well. Um, I was wondering, how were you able to finally make a living amends to him and, um, for him to come to terms with, you know, like wanting to have any kind of relationship with you and for you to accept another person into his life um, with peace and love. Thank you. 
Thank you for the question. Well, I think it started when I got abstinent in a vision for you and woke up and realized how unhappy he was and asked him about it. And he told me he wanted out of the marriage. And I said, okay. Um, I said, let's get a one attorney, not two. Let's get, um, what are they called? Um, an attorney that helps you reconcile. The, um, there's a name for it. I can't think of the term right now. But, arbitrator. Um, <laughs> yeah, an arbitrator. Somebody who can help you come up with an agreement, um, a marriage dissolution agreement, rather than fighting each other. So it was very important to me that we have that, that we have an amicable divorce, that we together um, come up with um, a plan for our divorce. And we did that. And I think that was the beginning of my amends, letting him go and not taking him to the cleaners, which I guess I could have done. Having been married so long, he was the primary breadwinner. I didn't do that. I was, uh, I knew that I had a huge part in our, the dissolution of our marriage. I knew it. Um, you know, perhaps I shouldn't have gotten anything because I, I, uh, but I, but I didn't do that either. I took the middle road. Um, I tried to take a humble road. And that was the beginning of my amends. Um, and perhaps because um, I, I always had the sense that the relationship wasn't right, and because I knew that I had made him so unhappy for so long, I was, I was happy to see him happy. He found a new uh, woman right away. And I believe that was God working in his life. He found the lover of his life <laughs> quickly. And I was happy for him. And um, she tragically died after a year and a half. And he has since found another beautiful woman in his life. And yes, I, I appreciate her. I am grateful that she is with him and making him happy today. So um, I, I credit the program these 12 steps, I owe him a lot. I really do. I owe him a tremendous amends. And if I can, if I can support him in his new happiness, I'm very happy to do it. And with that, we'll pass. Yes, thank you, Rhonda. And that is the end of our presentation this morning. Jody, thank you so much for your generosity. I have to say, when you begin to speak, everything for me slows down. And that's a real positive thing. <laughs> so recovery, <laughs> God's handiwork. If you were to take my vitals, the heart rate, everything slows down. It's always been that way. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. I'm sure I'm not thank the only you, one. Thank you, Larry. I'm always yeah, happy to hear you on the line as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so we are going to close um, with a reading from the big book in the chapter uh, there is a, uh, not there is a solution, uh, the chapter of vision for you on page 164. 
And then uh, after the recording stops, we will ask uh, Jody to leave her contact information if you care to reach her. So here we go. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.